Hello everyone. I apologise for the podcast silence over the past month. Um, I've been keeping people updated on Patreon and on Twitter. But if you didn't see that, then I've been ill. Uh, Dental surgery followed immediately, like the morning after, by what I assume was a chest infection. And also lots of hallucinations. I was seeing things on the wall and um, out in the hall and sprouting from the bedroom door. It's been a weird time. I'm better now, just uh, feeling quite weary. So I'm back and with a four minutes of threads episode, although because I'm still quite poorly, this will be a one minute of threads episode. But it's a good minute and it starts with a great scene. To recap, uh, the authorities are trying to drag some kind of organisation, some kind of order from the ruins of Sheffield. And the way to do that, the way to control and compel your population, is now through food. You can't threaten them with uh, punishment anymore, as the old methods are now meaningless. After all, you can't fine people after nuclear war because they have no money. Even if they had a wallet stuffed with notes, uh, those notes are now just bits of paper. You can't seize their possessions, they don't have any. You can't sentence them to jail, because a spell in jail would now be something of a delight. A bed, you say? Stout stone walls to shield me from fallout and nuclear winter? Security? Routine? The obligation to house and clothe and feed me? Yes, please, sign me right up for that. So no, the surest way to punish people now is to withhold food from them. And the surest way to compel them to act as you desire is to reward them with food. They say the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Well, here it's the hand that holds the ladle. And so with food being now so valuable, with food having the power not just to quell your hunger, but to actually control a person, to control a population, the authorities are clamping down hard on those who try to steal it. And so our scene opens at the Door and Totley Tennis Club, which is a real tennis club in Sheffield, and one which I visited on my recent tour of the Threads filming locations. You can find a podcast about that in the archive by looking for the Sheffield special episodes. So the Door and Totley Tennis Club has been turned into a detention camp. The court is packed full of looters, all penned in by the high wire and fencing of the tennis courts. Of course, if we imagine a detention camp, we might think of tough, hardened criminals being penned up in there, big blokes with skinheads and tattoos. But there's none of that. The tennis court is stuffed with ordinary people from Sheffield. They are filthy, of course, and ragged and angry, But the cameras take care to show that we have men and women, young and old. We even see a young, frightened-looking blonde girl behind the fencing, 
and the camera does seem to linger on her. The fact that it lingers on her has provoked some people to argue that she is our Alison, Jimmy's sister who was last seen going off to the shops just before the bomb drops and of course is never seen again. Like Jimmy, her fate is unknown. She simply dies. She vanishes in the nuclear attack. We don't know what happens to her and that makes her death all the more horrifying because nuclear war will not allow you the dignity of identification and a cause of death and a burial. So I don't believe this is Alison. I don't think it particularly looks like her either. It's just a blonde girl. If the camera does linger on her, it's probably to show, as I suggested, that the detention camp is not filled with hard-nut criminals, cliched baddies, but there are pretty young girls in there too, because starvation makes us all equal. The desperate hunger that a pretty young girl will feel is just as acute and painful as that felt by a tough guy with a string of convictions. I love the fact that this scene of filthy, desperate, angry, swearing people is filmed at a tennis club. How suburban, how genteel, how middle class. This crowd could have been filmed penned up anywhere, um, a car park, a, a school playground, a farmer's field. But no, they have carefully chosen a tennis club to show how thin and weak and flimsy are our pretensions at civility and genteel behaviour. Maybe some of the filthy people in this scene, the ones hammering at the fence and swearing, maybe they once held a membership at the Door and Totley Tennis Club. Maybe they once sat by the lawn with a gin and tonic, or shook hands on a business deal at the bar, or flirted with their neighbour over the net. And now look at them. Our hold on civilised behaviour is so weak, it does not take long for it to loosen. This scene is set four weeks after the bomb drops. Four short weeks. And look what's happening down at the tennis club. So who is controlling the crowd at the tennis club? The ones who are thumping at the wire, shaking the fence... Hurling abuse. We see a couple of soldiers, sure, but the the real terror here, the man you would not dare cross, the man who perhaps haunts your dreams, the traffic warden is here. He is patrolling the fence and he's armed and with his gun he butts at the fence as though he's a, a lion tamer at some dodgy travelling circus from the 1930s going from dusty old town to dusty old town. He butts at the fence with his gun. It's such a dismissive gesture, so contemptuous of the people. But the fence, keep back animals, brute force for the brutes. Now, we all know this is an iconic scene, of course, um, but why is the traffic warden so terrifying? There are a thousand horrific images and moments and threads, so why is it this guy who stands out so much? First, if there's anyone listening who hasn't seen Threads or who doesn't know what the traffic warden looks like, let me describe him. I have scrutinised his outfit, not just because I'm obsessed with the film, but because I dressed up as him recently for Halloween. I didn't go to a party or anything, I just 
<laughs> dressed up as him and sat about the house drinking tea and frightening my wee dog, I think. He's wearing his full traffic warden uniform, so smart coat, shirt, tie, hat. And it's all present and correct. What does that tell us? Because his tie isn't askew, his hat is firmly on his head, he looks smart, properly togged up for work. So that tells me that perhaps he was plucked from the street. Perhaps whilst on duty, he was just taken by the authorities and handed a gun. Told, look, things are about to get nasty, we're in the precautionary period, that is the last few days before the expected attack, so put your wee notebook down and learn how to handle this gun because things are going to get bad. Or he was told to abandon his traffic warden work and just attend somewhere else for civil defence duties. And he was told, when you're attending for duty, uh, if you've got a uniform, wear it. Whether you're a traffic warden or a a bus ticket inspector or a school janitor or a security guard, if you have something which makes you look official and give a small indication of power, then wear it. Wear it and wring every drop of clout you can get from it. Although, in the National Archives down in Kew, I found a discussion paper. Um, I don't have it to hand, so this is just from memory. But it suggested that such displays of authority, however tenuous, might actually be a negative thing for the wearer. The thinking was that when radiation levels have decreased and it's finally safe to send medical and rescue teams out, these people in their paramedic uniform, for example, might actually be subject to anger and violence from survivors because they represent authority and officialdom. Here come the organised official people, the people in uniform, angry and furious and hurt and desperate survivors. They'll never be able to lash out or take revenge on presidents and prime ministers and politicians who perhaps got us into this mess. But here are people... From the authorities, uh, the next best thing, the closest you'll get. You'll never be able to punch the president, but you can perhaps take a swipe at a paramedic. As to the particulars of the traffic warden's clothing, his coat is filthy. It's dusted in what I suppose is general dirt, but is also perhaps meant to represent fallout. And I recreated this for my Halloween costume by buying an old second-hand coat from eBay and lightly sprinkling Johnson's baby powder on the shoulders. But despite our traffic warden's unkempt and dirty appearance, his coat is still properly buttoned and his shirt is done up and his tie is neatly knotted and his hat sits firmly on his head. It's not askew as it would be in a lesser film to represent chaos or drunkenness. No, this man, he still gets out of bed, or gets up from the floor, every morning and buttons the coat, ties the tie, and places the hat on his head. Or perhaps he just simply never changes out of it. But he wears this uniform because 
that's maybe all he has now to mark him out as special. To mark him out as belonging firmly on this side of the tennis court fence. Well, that and the the big whopping gun that he's brandishing. Tools, devices, weapons, implements, badges, uniforms. These things are needed to prop up the sense of self now and the sense of worth. In this post-attack world, you're either in with the big boys, the, the guys with the guns and the shirts and the ties, or you're out there beyond the wire with the little people, the helpless, the hungry. So visible and heavy things, things which can be worn and brandished and aimed at people, that's what matters now. Not your character or your personality or your education or the letters after your name or the posh postcode you used to live in. If it's not visible, edible, wieldable, then it doesn't matter. Of course, the other very noticeable thing about the traffic warden's appearance is the bandage on his face. And that is what makes him terrifying above anything else. Any kind of mask or face covering, of course, always adds a sinister element because it covers the face and so it conceals the identity. Who am I really standing face to face with? And it conceals the expression. Is he, is he kidding when he threatens me? Is he joking? Oh my God, is he serious? Is this real? We need the face, we need the expression to know where we stand. Without that, we're flailing, guessing, uncertain, at a disadvantage. And not only is this guy masked, but his mask is filthy and it's bloodstained. The bloodstained bandage tells us a few things. One, it tells us that he has sought and been given medical treatment. But two, it tells us he was given it once and then not again. Someone cared enough to patch up his wounds and bandage his face, but the bandage has obviously never been replaced. It's filthy. And if the bandage is dirty on the surface, we can only imagine what state the wounds are underneath. Festering, infected, unclean, unattended... So he was valued enough by authority to be given treatment, but not valued enough to be tended to regularly. Or perhaps we're overthinking it, perhaps the medical supplies just plain ran out. We've already seen the state of the Sheffield Royal Infirmary in other scenes, so perhaps the supplies of clean bandages and disinfectant simply ran out. He has more than one wound on his face, um... I had to study this to recreate a Halloween with a bandage and red nail varnish. He has a huge splotch of blood over one ear and he has another uh, on the front of his face by his nose. And he could have more, of course. That's why the bandage mask is so sinister because we don't know what's going on under the bandage. So our traffic warden is valued and required by authority and that's why he's on duty. That's why he's armed. That's why, we assume, he's being housed and fed and directed by that same authority. But they don't, or they can't, care enough to offer basic medical treatment. That is, a clean wound 
covered by a clean bandage. And surely medical treatment can't get more basic than that. Also, it can't get more essential than that, more vital. If you've read the book uh, published a few years ago now, The Butchering Art by Lindsay Fitzharris, I think I've mentioned it before on this podcast, you'll know how much medicine was changed by antiseptic, by the simple notion, well, simple to us, of course, with hindsight, of keeping wounds clean, of keeping germs out. We've talked about how the NHS would collapse after nuclear war, and yes, it would, but even the most basic thing, like keeping a wound clean, something which you could surely do even without an NHS behind you or a skilled doctor at your elbow, even that will quickly become impossible once the fresh bandages and the antiseptic bottles and the clean water go. Back to the film. Our traffic warden parades along the tennis court fence, uh, butting at the wire with his gun to keep the angry crowd back. As he walks past, we see one man in the crowd scream at him. It's hard to understand what he shouts, but we can tell it's certainly something abusive. I could never quite make it out, but when I got a copy of the thread's script, it obviously became clear, he shouts, Buggered if I'll be shot by a traffic warden. Here's the clip again. Now, I love that line, because there's a bit of humour in it. And that reminds us, instantly, that those people behind the fence are not animals, not a mob, not a crowd, not a mass of criminals, but they are people. And this guy is an ordinary bloke from Sheffield. That one line reminds us, it throws a spotlight instantly on one person in the crowd and that illuminates everyone in the crowd. These are ordinary people from Sheffield. And this guy, who's buggered if he'll be shot by a traffic warden, he's one who, like so many I suppose, has had a good old grumble in the old days about traffic wardens. A reminder that maybe in the old world he parked on a double yellow, just for a minute, just while he ran into the shop to get some bread and milk, and he came back out to find he had a ticket. Maybe it was a ticket from this very traffic warden. And our guy moaned and complained, bloody traffic wardens, I was only away for five minutes. I was only in to get bread and milk. And now, the world has been turned upside down so completely, so ferociously, that this same traffic warden, who ticketed him for rushing in for bread and milk. This same man now has him penned up in a tennis court cage. These are the new roles that nuclear war has bestowed upon them. They are now starving prisoner and blood-stained jailer. And yet, through the murk and the desperation and the hopelessness and the rage, they're still beams the character of the indignant Yorkshireman who yells buggered if I'll be shot by a traffic warden. In the next scene, we see a crew of workmen who are hammering and shoving their way through dust and rubble. We see their torches flashing through the gloom. They force their way along. It's the rescue team who have finally 
managed to burrow their way down through the ruins of Sheffield Town Hall to reach the council staff in the basement. When they finally break through into the basement, they are like Howard Carter and his team entering the tomb. They break through into silence because no one is left alive in there. The council staff have all suffocated. A terrible death and one which was unnecessary and pointless. As the torches of the rescue team sweep through the dust and the gloom, we see Clive Sutton, the council leader, slumped forward on his desk, his eyes wide open, and the framed photograph of his wife is lying there in the dust. Well, he didn't have to die down there, separated from her and from his family. Dying in a filthy, airless basement far from his loved ones. He could have, for what it's worth, died with them in his own home. Because we can assume that the council staff were never of much practical use after the bomb dropped. Every scene down there after the bomb was one of chaos and despair and frustration. Because we know that planning for nuclear war is futile. But as I've said many times in this podcast, planners gonna plan. That's their job. That's what they're there to do. Whether or not we think it's worthless or futile, they've got to turn up and do their job. And perhaps it's also just human nature to try and sort and organise and arrange and prepare. Who can blame them for trying? And yet, how futile it all was. Thank you for listening to my one minute of threads. Again, sorry for having gone quiet on you, but I really was not well and I'm still quite weary. But thank you for listening and a special thanks, of course, to all my patrons who stayed with me and continue to support the podcast. My patrons are invited to submit questions for an upcoming special episode. I'll be interviewing Edward Geist, an American expert on nuclear weapons, and he is kindly going to answer questions for us on EMP, the electromagnetic pulse. So if you are a patron, go to patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo and I've got a post on the site there for you about this and you can ask any question you might have about EMP. There are already 14 questions there on the Patreon site so please do join in if you're a patron or sign up if you want to get involved and you can also get access to extra podcast episodes. I have resumed those two now that I'm better and I added one uh, two days ago, three days ago I think, about the Australian nuclear war film from 1984 called One Night Stand. So thank you all for listening, and I am glad to be back, even if it's just for one minute of threads.